The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 5 There are, of course, many problems connected with life, of which some of the most popular are Why are people born? Why do they die? And why do they want to spend so much of the intervening time wearing digital watches? Many millions of years ago, a race of hyper-intelligent pan-dimensional beings, whose physical manifestation in their own pan-dimensional universe is not dissimilar to our own, got so fed up with the constant bickering about the meaning of life, which used to interrupt their favourite pastime of Brockian ultra-cricket, a curious game which involved suddenly hitting people for no readily apparent reason and then running away, that they decided to sit down and solve their problems once and for all. And to this end, they built themselves a stupendous supercomputer, which was so amazingly intelligent that even before its data banks had been connected up, it had started from, I think, therefore I am, and got as far as deducing the existence of rice pudding and income tax before anyone managed to turn it off. It was the size of a small city. Its main console was installed in a specifically designed executive office, mounted on an enormous executive desk of finest ultra-mahogany, topped with rich ultra-red leather. The dark carpeting was discreetly sumptuous. Exotic pot plants and tastefully engraved prints of the principal computer programmers and their families were deployed liberally about the room, and stately windows looked out upon a tree-lined public square. On the day of the great on-turning, two soberly dressed programmers with briefcases arrived and were shown discreetly into the office. They were aware that this day they would represent their entire race in its greatest moment. But they conducted themselves calmly and quietly as they seated themselves deferentially before the desk. Their names were Lunkwill and Fook. For a few moments they sat in respectful silence. Then, after exchanging quiet a glance with Fook, Lunkwill leaned forward and touched a small black panel. The subtlest of hums indicated that the massive computer was now in total active mode. After a pause, it spoke to them in a rich, deep, resonant voice. It said, What is this great task for which I, deep thought, the second greatest computer in the universe of time and space have been called into existence. Lunkwill and Fook glanced at each other in surprise. 
Your task, O computer, began Fook. No, 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 wait a minute. This isn't right, said Lunkwill, worried. We, we distinctly designed this computer to be the greatest one ever, and we're not making do with second best. Deep thought, he addressed the computer. Are you not, as we designed you to be, the greatest and most powerful computer in all time? I described myself as the second greatest, intoned Deep Thought, and such I am. Another worried look passed between the two programmers. Lunkwill cleared his throat. <clears> throat> there must be some mistake, he said. Are you not a greater computer than the milliard gargantu brain at Maximegalon, which can count all the atoms in a star in a millisecond? The milliard gargantu brain, said Deep Thought with unconcealed contempt. A mere abacus, mention it not. And are you not, said Fook, leaning anxiously forward, a greater analyst than the Googleplex star thinker in the seventh galaxy of light and ingenuity that could calculate the trajectory of every single dust particle through a five-wheat Dangrabad beta sand blizzard? A five-week sand blizzard? said Deep Thought haughtily. You ask this of me, who have contemplated the many vectors of the atoms in the Big Bang itself. Molest me not with this pocket calculator stuff. The two programmers sat in uncomfortable silence for a moment. Then Lunkwill leaned forward again. But, but, are you not, he said, a more fiendish disputant than the great hyperlobic omnicognate neutron wrangler of Ciceronus Twelve? the magic and indefatigable. The great hyperlobic omnicognate neutron wrangler, said Deep Thought, thoroughly rolling the R's, could talk all four legs off an Arcturan megadonkey. But only I could persuade it to go for a walk afterwards. Then what? asked Fook. Is the problem? There is no problem, said Deep Thought with magnificent ringing tones. I am simply the second greatest computer in the universe of space and time. But the second, insisted Lunkwill. Why, why do you keep saying the second? You're surely not thinking of the multicorticoid... Per <laughs> Shit, excuse me. The multicorticoid persecutron titan Muller, are you? Or the pondomatic? Or the... Contemptuous lights flashed across the computer's console. I spare not a single unit of thought on these cybernetic simpletons he boomed. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me. Fook was losing patience. He pushed his notebook aside and muttered, I, I think this is getting needlessly messianic. You know nothing of future time, pronounced Deep Thought.
And yet, in my teeming circuitry, I can navigate the infinite delta streams of future probability and see that there must one day come a computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate, but which it will be my fate eventually to design. Fook sighed heavily and glanced across to Lunkwill. <sighs> Can we get on and ask the question? He said. Lunkwill motioned him to wait. What computer is this of which you speak? He asked. I will speak of it no further in this present time, said Deep Thought. Now, ask what else of me you will that I may function. Speak. They shrugged at each other. Fook composed himself. Oh, deep thought computer, he said, the task we have designed you to perform is this. We want you to tell us, he paused, the answer. The answer, said deep thought. The answer to what? Life, urged Fook. The universe, said Lunkwill. Everything, they said in chorus. Deep Thought paused for a moment's reflection. Tricky, he said finally. But can you do it? Again. A significant pause. Yes, said Deep Thought. I can do it. There is an answer, Fook said with breathless excitement. A simple answer, added Lunkwill. Yes, said Deep Thought. Life, the universe and everything. There is an answer. But, he added, I'll have to think about it. A sudden commotion destroyed the moment. The door flew open and two angry men wearing the coarse faded blue robes and belts of the Cruxwan University burst into the room, thrusting aside the ineffectual flunkies who tried to bar their way. We demand admission, said the younger of the two men, elbowing a pretty young secretary in the throat. Come on, shouted the older one. You can't keep us out. He pushed a junior programmer back through the door. We demand that you can't keep us out, bawled the younger one, though he was now firmly inside the room and no further attempts were being made to stop him. Who are you? said Lunkwill, rising angrily from his seat. What do you want? I am Magic Thighs, announced the older one, and I demand that I am Vroom Fondle, shouted the younger one. Magic Thighs turned on Vroom Fondle. It's all right, he explained angrily. You don't need to demand that. All right, bawled Vroom Fondle, banging on a nearby desk. I am Vroom Fondle, and that is not a demand. That is a solid fact. What we demand is solid facts. No, we don't exclaimed Magic Thighs in irritation. That is precisely what we don't demand. 
Scarcely for pausing for breath, Vroomfondle shouted, What we don't demand is solid facts. What we demand is a total absence of solid facts. I demand that I may or may not be Vroomfondle. But who the devil are you? exclaimed an outraged Fook. We, said Magic Thighs, are philosophers. Though we may not be, said Vroomfondle, waving a warning finger at the programmers. Yes, we are insisted Magic Thighs, we are quite definitely here as representatives of the amalgamated union of philosophers, sages, luminaries, and other thinking persons, and we want this machine off, and we want it off now. What's the problem? said Lunkwill. I'll tell you what the problem is, mate, said Magic Thighs. Demar bloodycation, that's the problem. We demand, yelled Roomfondrel, that demarcation may or may not be the problem. You just let the machines get on with the adding up, warned Magic Thighs, and we'll take care of the eternal verities, thank you very much. You want to check your legal position, you do, mate. Under law, the quest for ultimate truth is quite clearly the inalienable prerogative of your working thinkers. Any bloody machine goes and actually finds it and we're straight out of a job, aren't we? I mean, what's the use of our sitting up half the night arguing that there may or may not be a god if this machine not only goes and gives you his bleeding phone number the next bloody morning? That's right, shouted Roomfondle. We demand rigidly divide areas of doubt and uncertainty. Suddenly, a stentorian voice boomed across the room. Might I make an observation at this point? inquired Deep Thought. We'll go on strike, yelled Vroomfondle. That's right, agreed Magic Thighs. You'll have a national philosopher's strike on your hands. The hum level in the room suddenly increased as several ancillary base driver units mounted in sedately carved and varnished cabinet speakers around the room cut in to give Deep Thought's voice a little more power. All I wanted to say bellowed the computer, is that my circuits are now irrevocably committed to calculating the answers to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. He paused and satisfied himself that he now had everyone's attention, before continuing a little more quietly. But... The program will take me a little while to run. Fook glanced impatiently at his watch. How long? he said. Seven and a half million years, said Deep Thought. Lunkwill and Fook blinked at each other. Seven and a half million years, they cried in chorus. Yes, declaimed Deep Thought. I said I'd have to think about it, didn't I? And it occurs to me that running a program like this is bound to create an enormous amount of popular publicity for the whole area of philosophy in general. Everyone's going to have their own theories about what answer I'm eventually going to come up with. And who better to capitalize on that media market than you yourselves? 
So long as you can keep disagreeing each o- with each other v- violently enough and slagging each other off in the popular press, and so long as you have clever agents, you can keep yourselves on the gravy train for life. How does that sound? The two philosophers gaped at him. Bloody hell, said Magic Thighs. Now that is what I call thinking. Here, Froomfondle, why don't we ever think of things like that? Dunno, said Vroomfondle in awed whispers. Think our brains must be uh, too highly trained, Magic Thighs. So saying, they turned on their heels and walked out of the door and into a lifestyle beyond their wildest dreams. 26. Yes, very salutary, said Arthur, after Slighty Bartfast had related the salient points of this story to him, but I don't understand what all this has got to do with the earth and and mice and things. Uh, This is but the first half of the story, Earthman, said the old man. If you would care to discover what happened seven and a half million years later, on the great day of the answer, allow me to invite you to my study where you can experience the events yourself on our censor tape records. That is, unless you would care to take a quick stroll on the surface of New Earth. It's only half completed, I'm afraid. We haven't even finished buying the artificial dinosaurs, burying the dinosaur skeletons in the crust yet. Then we have the tertiary and quaternary periods of the Cenozoic area to lay down, and no, thank you, said Arthur. It, it wouldn't be quite the same. No, said Slarty Bartfast. It won't be. And he turned the air car around and headed back towards the mind-numbing wall. 27. Slarty Bartfast's study was a total mess a little like the results of an explosion in a public library. The old man frowned as they stepped in. Terribly unfortunate, he said. A diode blew in one of the life support computers when we tried to revive our cleaning staff. We discovered they'd been dead for nearly 30,000 years. Who's going to clear away the bodies? That's what I want to know. Look, why don't you sit yourself down over there and let me plug you in? He gestured Arthur towards a chair, which looked as if it had been made out of the ribcage of a stegosaurus. Um, It was made out of the ribcage of a stegosaurus, explained the old man as he pottered about, fishing bits of wire out from under tottering piles of paper and drawing instruments. Here, he said, hold these, and passed a couple of stripped wire ends to Arthur. The instant he took hold of them, a bird flew straight through him. He was suspended in mid-air and totally invisible to himself. Beneath him was a pretty tree-lined city square, and all around it, as far as the eye could see, were white concrete buildings of airy, spacious design, but somewhat the worse for wear. Many were cracked and stained with rain. Today, however, the sun was shining. A fresh breeze danced lightly through the trees, and the odd sensation that all the buildings were quietly humming 
was probably caused by the fact that the square and all the streets around it were thronged with cheerful, excited people. Somewhere a band was playing, brightly coloured flags were fluttering in the breeze, and the spirit of carnival was in the air. Arthur felt extraordinarily lonely stuck up in the air above it all without so much as a body to his name, but before he had time to reflect on this, a voice rang out across the square and called for everyone's attention. A man standing on a brightly dressed dais before the building which completely, sorry, which clearly dominated the square was addressing the crowd over a tannoy. O oh, people who wait in the shadow of deep thought, he cried out, honoured descendants of Vroomfondle and Magic Thighs, the greatest and most truly interesting pundits the universe has ever known, the time of waiting is over. Wild cheers broke out amongst the crowd. Flags, streamers and wolf whistles sailed through the air. The narrower streets looked rather like centipedes rolled over on their backs and frantically waving their legs in the air. Seven and a half million, sorry, seven and a half million years our race has waited for this great and hopefully enlightening day, cried the cheerleader. The day of the answer. Hurrahs burst from the ecstatic crowd. Never again, cried the man, never again will we wake up in the morning and think, who am I? What is my purpose in life? Does it really, cosmically speaking, matter if I don't get up and go to work? For today we will finally learn once and for all the plain and simple answer to all those nagging little problems of life, the universe, and everything. As the crowd erupted once again, Arthur found himself gliding through the air and down towards one of the large stately windows on the first floor of the building behind the dais from which the speaker was addressing the crowd. He experienced a moment's panic as he sailed straight towards the window, which passed when a second or so later he found that he'd gone right through the solid glass without apparently touching it. No one in the room remarked upon his peculiar arrival which is hardly surprising, as he wasn't there. He began to realise that the whole experience was merely a recorded projection which knocked 6-track 70mm into a cocked hat. The room was much as Slarty Bartfast had described it. In seven and a half million years, it had been well looked after and cleaned regularly every century or so. The ultra-mahogany desk was worn at the edges, the carpet a little faded now, but the large computer terminal sat in sparkling glory on the desk's leather top, as bright as if it had been constructed yesterday. Two severely dressed men sat respectfully before the terminal and waited. The time is, is nearly upon us, said one, and Arthur was surprised to see a word suddenly materialise in thin air just by the man's neck. The word was loonquall, and it flashed a couple of times and then disappeared again. Before Arthur was able to assimilate this, the other man spoke, and the word fukchung appeared by his neck. 
75,000 generations ago, our ancestors set this program in motion, the second man said. And in all that time, we will be the first to hear the computer speak. An awesome prospect, Fu Chung, agreed the first man, and Arthur suddenly realised he was watching a recording with subtitles. We are the ones who will hear, said Fu Chung, the answer to the great question of life. The universe, said Loon Kuol, and everything. Shh, said Loon Kuol with a slight gesture. I think deep thought is preparing to speak. There was a moment's expectant pause, whilst panels slowly came to life on the front of the console. Lights flashed on and off experimentally, and settled down into a business-like pattern. A low, soft hum came from the communication channel. Good morning, said Deep Thought at last. Ah, good morning, oh, Deep Thought, said Loonquall nervously. Do you have, um, that is... An answer for you? interrupted Deep Thought majestically. Yes, I have. The two men shivered with expectancy. Their waiting had not been in vain. There really is one? breathed Fukchung. There really is one, confirmed Deep Thought. To everything? To the, the great question of life, the universe, and everything? Yes. Both of the men had been trained for this moment. Their lives had been a preparation for it. They had been selected at birth as those who would witness the answer. But even so, they found themselves gasping and squirming like excited children. And you're you're ready to give it to us? urged Loon Kuol. I am. Now? No, said Deep Thought. They both licked their dry lips. Though, I don't think, added Deep Thought, that you're going to like it. Doesn't matter said Fukjung. We must know it now. Now? inquired Deep Thought. Yes, now. All right, said the computer, and settled into silence again. The two men fidgeted. The tension was unbearable. You're really not going to like it observed Deep Thought. Tell us! All right, said Deep Thought. The answer to the great question. Yes? Of life, the universe, and everything, said Deep Thought. Yes? Is, said Deep Thought, and paused. Yes. Is. Yes.
Forty-two, said Deep Thought, with infinite majesty and calm. Need a bit of tea, Deep Thought's knackering me throat. Oh, okay, that just doesn't sound right. Never mind. Okay. We continue. It was a long time before anyone spoke. Out of the corner of his eye, Fuk Jung could see the sea of tense expectant faces down in the square outside. We're going to get lynched, aren't we? he whispered. It was a tough assignment, said Deep Thought mildly. Forty-two, yelled Loon Call. Is that all you've got to show for seven and a half million years' work? I checked it very thoroughly, said the computer, and that quite definitely is the answer. I think the problem, to be quite honest with you, is that you've never actually known what the question is. But but it was the great question, the, the ultimate question of, of life, the universe, everything, howled Loon Quall. Yes, said Deep Thought, with the air of one who suffers fools gladly. But what actually is it? A slow, stupefied silence crept over the men as they stared at the computer and then at each other. Well, you know, it's just everything, everything, offered Fukchung weakly. Exactly. I'll try that again. Exactly, said Deep Thought. So once you know what the question actually is, you'll know what the answer means. Oh, terrific! said Fuk Chung, flinging aside his notebook and wiping away a tiny tear. Look, all right, all right, said Loon Call. Can you just please tell us the question? The ultimate question? Yes. Of life, the universe, and everything? Yes! Deep thought pondered for a moment. Tricky he said. But can you do it? cried Loon Quall. Deep thought pondered this for another long moment. Finally, no, he said firmly. Both men collapsed onto their chairs in despair. But I'll tell you who can, said Deep Thought. They both looked up sharply. Who? Tell us! Suddenly Arthur began to feel his apparently non-existent scalp begin to crawl as he found himself now moving slowly but inexorably towards the console. But it was only a dramatic zoom on the part of whoever had made the recording, he assumed. I speak of none but the computer that is to come after me. 
intoned deep thought, his voice regaining, regaining its accustomed declamatory tones. A computer whose merest operational parameters I am not worthy to calculate. And yet I will design it for you. A computer which can calculate the question to the ultimate answer. A computer of such infinite and subtle complexity that organic life itself shall form part of its operational matrix, and you yourselves shall take on new forms and go down into the computer to navigate its ten million year program. Yes, I shall design this computer for you. And I shall name it also unto you, and it shall be called the Earth. Fuk Chung gaped deep thought. What a dull name, he said, and great incisions appeared down the length of his body. Loon Qual too suddenly sustained horrific gashes from nowhere. The computer console blotched and cracked, the walls flickered and crumbled, and the room crashed upwards onto its own ceiling. Slarty Bartfast was standing in front of Arthur, holding the two wires. Um, end of the tape, he explained. Morty. Zaphod, wake up! <laughs> Hey, come on, wake up. Yeah, just let me stick to what I'm good at, yeah? muttered Zaphod and rolled away from the voice back to sleep. Do you want me to kick you? said Ford. Will it uh, give you a lot of pleasure? said Zaphod, blearily. No, nor me. So what's the problem? Stop bugging me. Zaphod curled himself up. He got a double dose of the gas, said Trillian, looking down at him. Two windpipes. And stop talking, said Zaphod. It's hard enough trying to sleep anyway. What's the matter with the ground? It's all cold and hard. It's gold, said Ford. With an amazingly balletic movement, Zaphod was standing and scanning the horizon because that was how far the gold ground stretched in every direction. Perfectly smooth and gold. It gleamed like... Well, it's impossible to say what it gleamed like because nothing in the universe gleams in quite the same way that a planet made of solid gold does. Who put all that there? yelped Zaphod, goggle-eyed. Don't get excited, said Ford. It's only a catalogue. Oh? A catalogue, said Trillian. An illusion. How can you say that? cried Zaphod, falling onto his hands and knees and staring at the ground. He poked it and prodded it. It was very heavy and very slightly soft. He could mark it with his fingernail. It was very yellow and very shiny, and when he breathed on it, his breath evaporated off it in that very peculiar and special way that breath evaporates off solid gold. Trillian and I came round a while ago, said Ford. We shouted and yelled till somebody came, and then carried on shouting and yelling till they got fed up and put us on their planet catalogue to keep us busy until they were ready to deal with us. This is all sensor tape. Zaphod stared at him bitterly. Ah, shit, he said. You wake me up from my perfectly good dream to show me somebody else's? He sat down in a huff. 
"'What's in that series of valleys over there?' he said. "'Hallmark,' said Ford. "'We had a look.' "'We didn't wake you earlier. We didn't want to,' said Trillian. "'The last planet was knee-deep in fish.' "'Fish?' "'Some people like the oddest things.' "'And before that,' said Ford, "'we had platinum. A bit dull. "'But we thought you'd like to see this one, though.' Seas of light glared at them in one solid blaze wherever they looked. Very pretty, said Zaphod petulantly. In the sky, a huge green catalogue number appeared. It flickered and changed, and when they looked around again, so had the land. As with one voice, they all went, Yuck! The sea was purple. The beach they were on was composed of tiny yellow and green pebbles, presumably terribly precious stones. The mountains in the distance seemed soft and undulating with red peaks. Nearby stood a solid silver beach table with a frilly mauve parasol and silver tassels. In the sky, a huge sign appeared, replacing the catalogue number. It said, Whatever your tastes, Magrathea can cater for you. We are not proud. And five hundred entirely naked women dropped out of the sky on parachutes. In a moment, the scene vanished and left them in a springtime meadow full of cows. Ow, said Zaphod, my brains. You want to talk about it, said Ford. Yeah, okay, said Zaphod and all three sat down and ignored the scenes that came and went around them. I figure this, said Zaphod. Whatever happened to my mind, I did it. And I did it in such a way that it wouldn't be detected by the government screening tests. And I wasn't to know anything about it myself. Pretty crazy, right? The other two nodded in agreement. So, I reckon, what's so secret that I can't let anybody I know no, I know it. Not the galactic government. Not even myself. And the answer is... I don't know. Obviously. But I put a few things together and I can begin to guess. When did I decide to run for president? Shortly after the death of President Uden Ranks. You remember Uden Ford? Yeah, said Ford. He was the guy that we met when we were kids. The Arcturan captain. He was a gas. He gave us conkers when you busted your way onto his mega freighter. Said you were the most amazing kid he'd ever met. What's, what's all this? said Trillian. Ancient history, said Ford. When we were kids together on Beetlejuice, the Arcturan mega freighters used to carry most of the bulky trade between the galactic centre and the outlying regions. The Beetlejuice trading scouts used to find the markets and the Arcturans would supply them. Then there was a lot of trouble with space pirates before they were all wiped out in the Dordelis Wars, and the mega freighters had to be equipped with the most fantastic defence shields known to galactic science. They were real brutes of ships, and huge. In orbit around a planet, they would eclipse the sun. One day, young Zaphod here decides to raid one on a trijet scooter designed for stratosphere work. A mere kid. I mean, forget it. It was crazier than a, than a mad monkey. I went along for the ride because I got some very safe money on him not doing it and didn't want him coming back with fake evidence. So what happens? We get in this trijet, which he'd souped up into something totally other, 
crossed three parsecs in a matter of weeks, burst our way into a mega freighter I still don't know how, marched onto the bridge waving toy pistols and demanded conkers. A wilder thing I have not known. Lost me a year's pocket money. For what? Conkers. The captain was this really amazing guy. Juden Vranks, said Zaphod. He gave us food, booze, stuff from really weird parts of the galaxy. Lots of conquerors, of course. And we just had the most incredible time. Then he teleported us back into the maximum security wing of the Beetlejuice State Prison. He was a cool guy. Went on to become president of the galaxy. Zaphod paused. The scene around them was currently plunged into gloom. Dark mists swirled around them, and elephantine shapes lurked indistinctly in the shadows. The air was occasionally rent with the sounds of illusory beings murdering other illusory beings. Presumably enough people must have liked this sort of thing to make it a paying proposition. Ford, said Zaphod quietly. Yeah? Just before Uden died, he came to see me. What? You never told me. No. What did he say? What did he come to see you about? He told me about the card of gold. It was his idea that I should steal it. His idea? Yeah, said Zaphod. And the only possible way of stealing it was to be at the launching ceremony. Ford gaped at him in astonishment for a moment, and then roared with laughter. Are you, are you telling me, he said, that you set yourself up to become president of the galaxy just to steal that ship? That's it, said Zaphod, with the sort of grin that would get most people locked away in a room with soft walls. But why? said Ford. What's so important about having it? Dunno, said Zaphod. I think if I consciously known what was so important about it, and what I would need it for, it would have shown up on the brain screening test and I would never have passed. I think Uden told me a lot of things that are still locked away. So, you think you went and mucked about inside your own brain as a result of Uden talking to you? He was one hell of a talker. Yeah, but Zaphod, old mate, you want to look after yourself, you know. Zaphod shrugged. I mean, don't you have any inkling of the reasons for all this? asked Ford. Zaphod thought hard about this, and doubts seemed to cross his mind. No, he said at last. I don't seem to be letting myself into any of my secrets. Still... He added, on further reflection, I can understand that. I wouldn't trust myself further than I could spit a rat. A moment later, the last planet in the catalogue vanished from beneath them, and the solid world resolved itself again. They were sitting in a plush waiting room full of glass-top tables and design awards. A tall Magrathian man was standing in front of them. The mice will see you now, he said. More tea.
30. So, uh, there you have it, said Slarty Bartfast, making a feeble and perfunctory attempt to clear away some of the appalling mess of his study. He picked up a piece of paper from the top of a pile, but then couldn't think of anywhere else to put it, so he put it back on top of the original pile, which promptly fell over. Um, yeah, Deep Thought designed the Earth, we built it, and you um, lived on it. And the Vogons came and destroyed it five minutes before the programme was completed, added Arthur, not unbitterly. Uh, yes, said the old man, pausing to gaze hopelessly around the room. Ten million years of planning and work gone, just like that. Ten million years, Earthman, can you conceive of that kind of time span? A galactic civilization could grow from a single worm five times over in that time. Gone, he paused. Well, that's bureaucracy for you, he added. You know, said Arthur thoughtfully, all this explains a lot of things. All through my life I've had this strange, unaccountable feeling that something was going on in the world, something big, even sinister, and no one would tell me what it was. Oh, said the old man, that's just perfectly normal paranoia. Everyone in the universe has that. Everyone? said Arthur. Well, if everyone has that, perhaps it means something. Perhaps somewhere outside the universe we know. Maybe. Who cares? said Slarty Bartfast, before Arthur got too excited. Perhaps I'm old and tired, he continued, but I always think that the chances of finding out what really is going on are so absurdly remote that the only thing to do is, say, hang the sense of it and just keep yourself occupied. Look at me. I designed coastlines. I got an award for Norway. He rummaged around in a pile of debris and pulled out a large perspex, perspex, block, block, bleh, perspex block with his name on it and a model of Norway moulded into it. Where's the sense in that? he said. None that I've ever been able to make out. I've been doing fjords all my life. For a fleeting moment they become fashionable and I get a major award. He turned it over in his hands with a shrug and tossed it aside carelessly, but not so carelessly that it didn't land on something soft. In their, well, in this replacement earth we're building, they've given me Africa to do. Of course, I'm doing it all with fjords again because I happen to like them, and I'm old-fashioned enough to think that they give a lovely baroque feeling to a continent. And they tell me it's not equatorial enough. Equatorial! He gave a hollow laugh. What does it matter? Science has achieved some wonderful things, of course. But I'd far rather be happy than right any day. And are you? No, that's where it all falls down, of course. Pity, said Arthur with sympathy. It sounded like quite a good lifestyle otherwise. Somewhere on the wall, somewhere on the wall a small white light flashed. Come, said Slarty Bartfast, you are to meet the mice. Your arrival on the planet has caused considerable excitement. It has already been hailed, so I gather, as the third most improbable event in the history of the universe. What were the first two? 
Oh, probably just coincidences, said Slotty Bartfast carelessly. He opened the door and stood waiting for Arthur to follow. Arthur glanced, glanced around him once more, and then down at himself, at the sweaty, dishevelled clothes he'd been lying in the mud in on the Thursday morning. I seem to be having a tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle, he muttered to himself. I beg your pardon, said the old man mildly. Oh, nothing, said Arthur, only joking. It is, of course, well known that careless talk costs lives. <laughs> Excuse me. There's a tea fighting back. We'll try that again. It is, of course, well... Sorry. It is, of course, well known that careless talk costs lives. But the full scale of the problem is not always appreciated. For instance, at the very moment that Arthur said... I seem to be having tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle. A freak wormhole opened up in the fabric of time-space, the space-time continuum, and carried his words far back in time across an almost infinite reach of space to a distant galaxy where strange and warlike beings were poised on the brink of a frightful interstellar battle. The two opposing leaders were meeting for the last time. The dreadful silence fell across the conference table as the commander of the Vlohurgs, resplendent in his black jewelled battle shorts, gazed levelly at the Gagugvant leader squatting opposite him in a cloud of green, sweet-smelling steam. And with a million sleek and horribly beweaponed star cruisers poised to unleash electric death at his single word of command, challenged the vile creature to take back what it had said about his mother. The creature stirred in his sickly broiling vapour, and at that very moment the words, I seem to be having a tremendous difficulty with my lifestyle, drifted across the conference table. Unfortunately, in the Vlahurg tongue, this was the most dreadful insult imaginable and there was nothing for it but to wage terrible war for centuries. Eventually, of course, after their galaxy had been decimated over a few thousand years, it was realised that the whole thing had been a ghastly mistake, and so the two opposing battle fleets settled their few remaining differences in order to launch a joint attack on our own galaxy, now positively identified as the source of the offending remark. For thousands more years, the mighty ships tore across the empty wastes of space and finally dived, screaming onto the first planet they came across, which happened to be the Earth, where, due to a terrible miscalculation of scale, the entire battle fleet was accidentally swallowed by a small dog. Those who study the complex interplay of cause and effect in the history of the universe say that this sort of thing is going on all the time, but that we are powerless to prevent it. It's just life, they say. A short, oops, a short air car trip brought Arthur and the old Magrathean to a doorway. 
They left the car and went through the door into a waiting room full of glass-topped tables and Perspex awards. Almost immediately, a light flashed above the door at the other side of the room and they entered. Arthur, you're safe, a voice said. Am I? said Arthur, rather startled. Oh, good. The lighting was rather subdued and it took him a moment to see Ford. Trillian and Zaphod, sitting round a large table beautifully decked out with exotic dishes, strange sweetmeats and bizarre fruits. They were stuffing their faces. What happened to you? demanded Arthur. Well, said Zaphod, attacking a boneful of grilled mussel, I guess here have been gassing us and zapping our minds and being generally weird, and have now given us rather a nice meal to make up to make make it up to us. Here, he said, hoiking out a lump of evil smelling meat from a bowl. Have some uh, vegan rhino's cutlet. It's delicious if you happen to like that sort of thing. Hosts, said Arthur. What hosts? I, I don't see any. A small voice said. Welcome to lunch, Earth Creature. Arthur glanced around and suddenly yelped. Oh, he said, there are mice on the table. There was an awkward silence as everyone looked pointedly at Arthur. He was busy staring at two white mice sitting in what looked like whiskey glasses on the table. He heard the silence and glanced around at everyone. Oh, he said, with sudden realisation. Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't quite prepared for... Um, let me introduce you, said Trillian. Arthur, this is Benji Mouse. Hi, said one of the mice. His whiskers stroked what must have been a touch-sensitive panel on the inside of the whiskey glass-like affair, and it moved forward slightly. And this is Frankie Mouse, the other mouse said. Pleased to meet you, and did likewise. Arthur gaped. But aren't they... Yes, said Trillian. They are the mice I bought with me from Earth. She looked him in the eye, and Arthur thought he detected the tiniest resigned shrug. Could you pass me that bowl of grated Arcturan megadonkey, she said. Slarty Bartfast coughed politely. Um, excuse me, he said. Yes, take your slarty part fast, said Benji Mouse sharply. You may go. Uh, what? Oh, uh, very well, said the old man, slightly taken aback. I'll, I'll just uh, go and get on with some of my fjords then. Well, in fact, that won't actually be necessary, said Frankie Mouse. It looks very much as if we won't be needing the new Earth any longer. He swivelled his pink little eyes. Not now that we've found a native of the planet who was there seconds before it was destroyed. What? cried Slarty Bartfast aghast. You can't mean that. I I've got a thousand glaciers poised and ready to roll over Africa. Well, perhaps you could take a quick skiing holiday before you dismantle them, said Frankie acidly. Skiing holiday, cried the old man. Those glaciers are works of art. 
elegantly sculpted contours, soaring pinnacles of ice, deep, majestic ravines. It would be sacrilege to go skiing on high art. Thank you, Slarty Bartfast, said Benji firmly. That will be all. Yes, sir, said the old man coldly. Thank you very much. Well, goodbye, Earthman, he said to Arthur. Hope the lifestyle comes together. With a brief nod to the rest of the company, he turned and walked sadly out of the room. Arthur stared after him, not really knowing what to say. Now, said Benji Mouse, to business. Ford and Zaphod clinked their glasses together. To business, they said. I beg your pardon, said Benji. Ford looked around. Oh, sorry, I thought you were proposing a toast, he said. The two mice scuttled impatiently around in their glass transports. Finally, they composed themselves, and Benji moved forward to address Arthur. Now, Earth, Earth creature, he said, the situation we have in effect is this. We have, as you know, been more or less running your planet for the last ten million years in order to find this wretched thing called the ultimate question. Why? said Arthur sharply. No, we already thought of that one, said Frankie, interrupting, but it doesn't fit the answer. Why? 42. You see, it doesn't work. No, said Arthur. I mean, why have you been doing it? Oh, I see, said Frankie. Well, eventually, just habit, I think, to be brutally honest. This is more or less the point. We're sick to the teeth of the whole thing, and the prospect of doing it all over again on account of those winnet-ridden Vogons quite frankly gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. You know what I mean? It was by the merest lucky chance that Benji and I finished our particular job and left the planet early for a quick holiday, and have since manipulated our way back to Magrathea by the good offices of your friends. Magrathea is a gateway back to our own dimension, put in Benji. Since when? continued his murine colleague, we have had an offer of quite enormously fat contract to do the 5D chat show and lecture circuit paddock in our own dimension neck of the woods, and we're very much inclined to take it. I would. Wouldn't you, Ford? said Zaphod promptingly. Oh, yeah, said Ford. Jump at it like a shot. Arthur glanced at them, wondering what all this was leading up to. But we've, we've got to have product, you see? said Frankie. I mean, ideally, we, we still need the ultimate question in some form or other. Zaphod leaned forward towards Arthur. You see, he said, if they're just sitting there in a studio looking very relaxed and, you know, just mentioning that they happen to know the answer to life, the universe and everything, and then eventually have to admit that it's fact, it's just 42, the show's probably going to be fairly quite short. No follow-up, you see. We have to have something that sounds good, said Benji. Something that sounds good, exclaimed Arthur. An ultimate question that sounds good. From a couple of mice. The mice bristled. Well, 
I mean, yes, idealism, yes, the dignity of pure research, yes, the pursuit of truth in all its forms, but there comes a point, I'm afraid, where you begin to suspect that if there's any real truth, it's that the entire multi-dimensional infinity of the universe is almost certainly being run by a bunch of maniacs. And if it comes to a choice between spending yet another 10 million years finding that out, and on the other hand, just taking the money and running, then I, for one, could do with the exercise, said Frankie. But, started Arthur hopelessly. Hey, will you get this, Earthman? interrupted Zaphod. You are a last-generation product of that computer matrix, right? And you were there right up to the moment your planet got the finger, yeah? Uh? So your brain was an organic part of the penultimate configuration of the computer program, said Ford, in Zaphod's voice, apparently. Rather lucidly, he thought. Right, said Zaphod. Well, said Arthur doubtfully. He wasn't aware of ever having felt an organic part of anything. He had always seen it as one of his big problems. In other words, said Benji, steering his curious little vehicle right over to Arthur, there's a good chance that the structure of the question is encoded into the structure of your brain. So, we want to buy it off you. What? The question? Yes, said Ford and Trillian. For lots of money, said Zaphod. No, no, said Frankie. It's the brain we want to buy. What? Well, who would miss it? inquired Benji. I, th I thought you said you could just read his brain electronically, protested Ford. Oh, yes, said Frankie. But we'd have to get it out first. It's got to be prepared. Treated said Benji. Diced. Thank you, shouted Arthur, tipping his chair and backing away from the table in horror. It could always be replaced, said Benji reasonably, if you think it's important. Yes, an electronic brain, said Frankie. A simple one would suffice. A simple one, wailed Arthur. Yeah, said Zaphod, with a sudden evil grin. You just have to program it to say, what? And I don't understand. And where's the tea? Who'd know the difference? What? cried Arthur, backing away still further. See what I mean? said Zaphod, and howled with pain because of something that Trillian did at that moment. I'd notice the difference, said Arthur. No, you wouldn't, said Frankie Mouse. You'd be, you'd be programmed not to. Ford made for the door. Uh, look, I, I'm sorry, mice old lads, he said. I don't think we've got a deal. I rather think we have to have a deal, said the mice in chorus, all the charm vanishing from their piping little voices in an instant. With a tiny whining shriek of their two glass transports, they were lifted. Well, sorry, with a tiny whining shriek, their two glass transports lifted themselves off the table and swung through the air towards Arthur, who stumbled further backwards into a blind corner, utterly unable to cope with or think of anything. Trillian grabbed him desperately by the arm and tried to drag him towards the door, which Ford and Zaphod were struggling to open. But Arthur was a dead weight. He seemed hypnotised by the airborne rodents swooping towards him. She screamed at him, but he just gaped. With one more yank, Ford and Zaphod got the door open. On the other side of it was a small pack of rather ugly men, 
who they could only assume were the heavy mob of Magrathea. Not only were they ugly themselves, but the medical equipment they carried with them was also far from pretty. They charged. So, Arthur was about to have his head cut open, Trillian was unable to help him, and Ford and Zaphod were about to be set upon by several thugs a great deal heavier and more sharply armed than they were. All in all, it was extremely fortunate that at that moment every alarm on the planet burst into an ear-splitting din. And that's where we'll leave it for tonight. We are well on for finishing it tomorrow night, by the look of it. Thank you very much for your company, everybody. Um, we will definitely uh, be able to wrap it up tomorrow evening. Um, so, very groovy, hoopy and fruity. Thank you so much for coming along again, everyone, this evening. Um, this will be posted, so if you didn't get a chance to uh, catch all of it, you'll be able to... to uh, everything else um, and as a rewind as a repeat but we will be back at the same time tomorrow well a little bit earlier um, hopefully there won't be a major speech or anything from anyone famous or significant in danish government to slow us down so yeah uh, 2100 cest or uh, 8 p.m uh, in the uk and at some other time anywhere else in the world if you're listening in from there but thank you very much for being here this evening i appreciate your company and uh, see you tomorrow. Bye, everyone. See ya.